Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. As we look to finish the chapter here this morning, and of course, just again to kind of review uh, the outline that we've been looking at through the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians has been all about joy. Don't you love talking about joy? Does anybody ever get tired of talking about joy or hanging out with people that are filled with joy? Does anybody get tired of that? I sure hope not. It's, joy is good, isn't it? Isn't joy a good thing? And this whole book has been here to be instructive for us of how we can continue on in joy and how we can continue on in joy despite things that might want to come in and rob us of our joy. So in chapter 1, we were looking at how... Is I get my slides up, which I'm not able to get up. There we go. All right. Secret of joy in spite of circumstances is the single mind. Then in chapter 2, the secret of joy in spite of people is the submissive mind, that humble mind. Here in chapter 3, we're looking at the secret of joy in spite of things, is the spiritual mind. As Paul has been looking to say, my desire, my heart is to press on with Jesus. Here he says, not that I've already attained, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is all about seeking Jesus, having that right perspective on things. And that's what we're looking at here in this chapter as we've seen Paul's past perspective, we've seen his present priority, and now we're going to look at Paul's future promise, beginning in verse 17. We're going to break that down a little bit more, and we're going to look at Paul's example, Paul's exhortation, and Paul's excitement. That's what we are looking at here today. Look at verse 17 with me of chapter 3 and there we read this brethren join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern so Paul here interesting what he says he says brethren now that's a pretty big statement so far you might ask why is that such a big statement it's because Paul was a guy who was a Jew through and through. This guy grew up a Jew. This guy breathed just Jewish air. He pumped Jewish blood. This guy was a Jew through and through. And yet he's writing to a church in Philippi that's comprised primarily of Gentiles. In that day that Paul's writing, that was a pretty big thing here now to go and call the Gentiles brethren because so far in Paul's upbringing, the Jews, and there's really only two groups of people, Jew or Gentile. If you're not a Jew, you're Gentile. All right? And, and the Jews just despised Gentiles. The Jews saw the Gentiles as just kind of like the filth of the earth. I mean, they did not look favorably at all. There was great disdain towards Gentiles. So much so that they would not have any kind of personal dealings with one another. If they saw a Gentile walking down the street, the Jews across the street go to the other side. Or make the Gentiles do that, you know? And so there were no kind of interpersonal connections. And yet, what makes this such a huge statement is that Paul now comes and he calls them brethren. He says, you know what, guys? Despite the differences that we might have had at one point, despite the barriers that had existed in Christ... We are all now one, so much so that I can call you brethren or sister and cistern, sisters, whatever you'd want to, brethren. What's the equivalent for sisters in that? Cistern is not right, but sisters, you get the idea, right? We're not trying to be gender exclusive here. But what Paul's saying is that we are family. 
We're together. Jesus now, as Ephesians says, he's broken down that middle wall of separation that once existed where we were cut off from one another. We did not associate with one another. Now, in Christ, we come together and there's a new family that's formed in and through Jesus by which whatever differences you might have had with other people in Christ, we become unified. We become one. We enjoy relationship with those that we never thought was possible before. And Paul is expressing that now just with that simple term, brethren, we're family, we're together now in and through Christ. Now, though Paul has been in this chapter highlighting the fact that we're not saved by our works or accomplishments, he's also been highlighting that our faith should be moving us on in progression, ultimately that we might know Jesus more, as he says in Ephesians, or sorry, Philippians 3 verse 10 that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. This is Paul's desire here. Now, there might be those that are listening to this and thinking, well, how do I press on with Jesus? What does that look like? How does that apply to me now? How can I practically live out this life where I'm knowing him and progressing and pressing on in him? Here's what Paul says. Hey, he says, if you don't know how this looks in your life, then follow my example. Follow my, if you want to know what it looks like to live for Jesus and live in Jesus and to be pressing on toward that goal, then follow my example. That's a pretty big thing for somebody to say, isn't it? How many of you would feel very comfortable if somebody were to come up to you and say, listen, I'm really struggling with what this whole Christian life is like and what it looks and how do I live this out practically? How many of you would feel comfortable saying, hey, you know what? Just follow my lead. Just follow my example. We'd be like, oh, yeah, you want to know how to live for Jesus? Well, you know, to begin with, I mean, don't look to me. I'm just human, right? I make mistakes too. I'm not there yet, you know, and just follow the word. Just do with the word. We would be quick to do that, and, and rightfully so. I get it. We always want to point people to Jesus and to the word, but here's Paul. Paul's not looking at himself as though he's got it all together. Remember, we've already heard him say, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected. Paul's already laid out for us that he does not have it all together. But what he does know is that my desire, my heart, my, my purpose in life right now is to press on in Jesus and to grow in him and know him. My goal in life is to keep progressing towards him and becoming more and more like him. Paul says, oh, I know I don't have it all together, but I know if you were to watch my life, you would see a person that is living wholeheartedly and devotedly to Jesus. That's Paul's heart. I wonder how many of us would feel comfortable doing the same thing. Because it, uh, it, it should be something that we'd feel very comfortable telling somebody, hey, you know what? You want to know what it looks like to live a Christian life? You want to know what it looks like to see a life that is loving Jesus above everything else and following him devotedly and wholeheartedly? Then just watch me. We should be very comfortable being able to say that. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. You see, Paul's not saying, I'm the perfect model here. I've got it all together. He's not saying that. He's saying, listen, I'm simply looking to myself follow Jesus. So imitate me as I am seeking to imitate Christ, as I'm seeking to be more and more Christ-like in my life. That's what I'm striving for. And so follow my example in that. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6, verse 11, and we desire that each one of you 
show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The writer here says, listen, don't be lazy, lackadaisical. Don't be sluggish in watching other people and in imitating those who've gone before you and walked that life of faith, pressing on with Jesus and in Jesus. Follow that example. Follow that same pattern and imitate those who are doing those same things. There are times we need that motivation and encouragement of watching others to see how they live that life of devotion and surrender to Jesus. Don't, don't you find that when you're around people that are living that life, and they're like, you're meeting them for coffee, you know, in the morning, they're like, oh man, I was just in the Word today, and the Lord was just really speaking to me. And you're sitting here going like, oh man, they're in the Word already? Like, oh my goodness, I haven't been in the Word all, at all this week, man. I better get myself into the Word. And you're, and you're seeing that example, and you're seeing just the joy and the blessing that they're having, and you begin to say, man, I want that myself. You know what that's like, how we are encouraged and, and motivated along with others. I, I think that's why Hebrews 10, a verse that we have oftentimes been focusing on in this past year, Hebrews 10, verse 24 to 25, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, why is our fellowship together so important, and especially the fellowship in person as we gather together? Because when we come together, we get to stir up one another to love and good works. We get to be that example. We get to live out this life as a model before others to stir one another up to say, hey, you know what the Lord's been just doing in my life this week? And we get to share with people and we get to encourage them. And they're like, oh, the Lord's been doing that? Well, let me, let me tell you what the Lord's been doing in my life. And we get to kind of, you know, the, the King James, I think it's a King James is like that idea of provoking one another, right? You know, that's kind of weird because we, we think of that term like with our siblings where we provoke one another. We're like, oh, what are you going to do about it, right? And you kind of start provoking one another. Yeah, take that. What are you going to do about it, right? And it's kind of like, you know, I was on a, a mission trip the other day and uh, man, or we're out evangelism on the street. Man, that's pretty awesome. What have you been up to? You know, and you kind of like give a little, you know, oh, well, I was, uh, you know, witnessing with my family and uh, they came to know Jesus. So what about that? You know, and it's like, I mean, that's maybe not a really good way to do it. But but what happens is that you get encouraged. You get kind of stirred up. You're like, man, that's exciting what's going on in that person's life. I want that in my life. I want to see that happening to me. And we get to be kind of encouraging one another. We get to stir one another up as the Bible says. That's why when we gather together, it's so important. I pray that as we meet together, that we're encouraging one another, that we're stirring one another up, that you're sharing with people, hey, you know what? Man, I was, I was just reading in my devos this week, my, my devotions, and the Lord was really speaking to me here. And it was just so encouraging. And you just get to share that with people. And, and you get to be that example and, and kind of encourage them in that where they're going, man, I need to get home and have some devotion so that I can have something to share with that person next week when I see them again. And we just get to be that blessing with one another here. That's what Paul is, is saying here. Follow my example. Live as an example. And, and Paul, again, he's not looking at himself as like the only example. What does he say there in verse 10? He says, note those who so walk. He says, there's others. It's not just me. There's others that are doing it. 
Note those that so walk as you have us for a pattern. That's what he's saying. There's many of us, but follow that example here now. Live that life where you are pressing in with Jesus, desiring to know him. And those of you that are younger, listen, sometimes we can think, you know, oh, well, that's kind of for the older people to be the example. We look to the older people. They've been the seasoned Christians. They've been in church longer than I have. But listen, for those of you that are younger, and, and by younger, I mean like, you know, those 50, 50 and under, you know, kind of thing. Like, there's a part that we all get to play in this. Paul said to Timothy, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. And I get excited when I hear younger people just sharing the things that they've been experiencing in the Lord, what they've been doing with the Lord, for the Lord, and through the Lord. And I get really fired up when I hear younger people doing that. Younger people, you, you, be an example of these things. Don't just... Look to, the, look to those that have gone before you. Look to those that are around you to be an example to you. But then you seek to be an example to others too of what it looks like to be living for Jesus. Now, it's important that we have the right example. As Paul is pointing out, note those that so walk as you have us for a pattern. It's important to have the right example because there are a lot of bad examples out there. Would you not agree? There are a lot of people out there that are professing to be believers but are not tracking with the Lord. And what Paul is showing here is that your conduct and your, or the link between what you believe and what you do is a very close one. What you believe and what you do is a very close one. So Paul says, it's not that way for a lot of people in what they believe or, or what they profess to believe and what they actually do. Look at what we see in verse 18. For many walk, of whom I've told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. So this connects us here with what Paul was talking about earlier in chapter 3 in verse 1 and 2 in warning the believers at Philippi to be careful of those that want to bring you under law as a means for salvation or righteousness. Paul said there, to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Now, look at what he's saying here. He says, I, I want to remind you, I've told you often of these things. Paul had to warn often of those that want to come into the church, that want to distort the truth and the good news of Jesus Christ. There's always been a need to remind people and encourage people to stay in the truth because there are a lot of people that want to get them derailed and out of the truth. See, the way is very narrow. Jesus made that very clear, right? And yet people love to be on that wide path. They are attracted to the wide path. The wide path is less obtrusive, less restricting. It's less uncomfortable. The wide path is very comfortable. But the wide path, the comfortable path, the popular path leads to destruction, Paul says. The wide path is not a good path, though it might seem like the popular, and sometimes we go, well, if there's so many people on it, is it really wrong? Don't we love to kind of go by the numbers? And yet Jesus said, narrow is the way, and there are few that find it. 
don't follow along with the, the popular thing. Don't follow along with the crowd. Follow Jesus and him alone. See, we have a real enemy that's always at work to distort the truth. He wants to twist the truth, bring people under a deception rather than the truth and get them off of the narrow way and back onto the wide way. So we need to be on guard and recognize some of the things that we are up against. Only Paul isn't emphasizing the legalists here. As he mentioned in the beginning of chapter 3, when he talked about those that want to, um, you know, he said, beware the dogs, right, uh, of evil workers, beware the mutilation. These were people that were coming in, uh, applying, you know, the law, saying, you need to follow the law if you're going to be right with God. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow all the different requirements of the law. So they brought people under unnecessary burdens and under legalism. But here now in verses 18 and 19, Paul doesn't have the legalist in mind. He's got more so the liberal in mind. The one that comes along and says, you know what? I'm saved. I'm under grace. So now I can just do what I want. And, and God just covers it all. This is who Paul is dealing with. They would say God is the God of grace. So it doesn't matter what you do. And they began to say, you can live your life now however you want. You can indulge the fleshly appetites, which is what Paul is implying when he says that their God is their belly. He's not saying that they just love to be in the kitchen and, and cook food and stuff like that. He's saying, no, they're led along by the fleshly appetites that they have. You, they would say, you can live your life as you feel and everything is going to turn out all right. They weren't so much concerned about living for Jesus now or even living with Jesus later. They were simply concerned with living their life now. You could say living their best life now. But sadly, it was about living their life their way and in a way that brought pleasure and personal gain for themselves. That's what it was all about. It was all about themselves. It was all about their, their self-pleasure. It was all about just doing what they wanted, thinking that everything would be under God's grace. And yet, this was in direct contradiction to the way of the cross. Paul said these people are the enemies of the cross of Christ. They are the enemies of the cross of Christ. See, the way of the cross says, I'm going to die to self. I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to walk in selflessness. I'm going to walk in submission and sacrifice. Those are the things that were demonstrated by Jesus there in Philippians 2, verse 5 and 8. This is what Jesus modeled for us. Coming and dying. Dying that death, even the death of the cross. These guys that Paul is pointing out, they want none of that. They don't want to give up their own desires. They don't want to yield. They don't want to sacrifice. They want to live for themselves rather than take up the cross. They want to live in excess and debauchery. And yet as much as they might think they're gaining in that kind of lifestyle, Paul says their end is destruction. It does not go well for them. They might think they're living it up right now. And they better live it up because it's not going to last. Their end is destruction. See, Jesus came to deliver us from that old nature. He didn't die on a cross so we could continue to live for the old nature. Anyone that remains in that kind of lifestyle of sin is bringing themselves into condemnation, judgment, and destruction. We're not saying that whenever you sin, you bring yourself under judgment. We know that we're not perfect. Paul says, I haven't, I haven't arrived or I'm perfected. But what we're talking about is those that choose 
to live a lifestyle of sin where they willingly say, here's the way of Jesus according to the word, but then there's this side over here, this side of sin, and I'm just going to choose to live that and hope that this just kind of all covers it. And they willfully live in sin. Listen, if you're being led of the flesh more than you are of the spirit, you need to ask if you're really born again. Are you really in Christ? Have you been born in the spirit? Have you crucified the flesh? Romans 6, verse 6 to 8 says, knowing this, that our old man, that old nature was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Romans 8, 5, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. So, what Paul is saying here is that if we're truly in Christ, then we're no longer living for the flesh and sin. We've crucified that flesh. We're, we've, we've put sin away. We're no longer saying, that's my goal in life. That's my desire in life. Saying, man, I want to live for Jesus. It's interesting that Paul says that their glory is in their shame. See, these people were flaunting their sin, thinking that they were more readily flaunting the grace of God. It's like when Paul had to counter those that were saying to him in Romans, like, oh, so grace now? So should we sin all the more that grace may abound? Paul's like, oh, come on, don't be ridiculous. But these people were saying, I'm going to sin all the more because it just means Grace is just continually flowing then. I'm going to live out my own desires. And they were glorying in their shame. What should have been seen as sin and shame, they were taking that to be like, this is what we're glorying in. This is what we're celebrating. We're celebrating that we can be free. We can live a very liberal life and everything's going to work out. You know, there's people that do that today. They'll say, oh, it's okay if I don't follow the Bible exactly. We're under grace now. God's a God of love. He doesn't condemn us anymore. And so I, though I may be living an immoral lifestyle, it's okay, it's all under grace. I don't need to follow exactly what the word says. There are people that profess to be believers that live that way now. Just as Paul was saying, note those who live a life as an example. The flip side is note those that don't live that life. Don't fall along with that. There are those that want to celebrate these things. You, you think of Gay Pride Month that's happening right now and the desire to normalize this behavior and have it an acceptable or common thing. It's a reversal of morality, so much so that it gets pushed upon children more and more. This is the kind of thing that's running on kids shows. It's getting introduced in schools today, this indoctrination to say, you know what? What the word might condemn, we don't have to. What the word might say is shameful, we can celebrate this now. We can glory in our shame. In fact, the stuff that is, is happening right now and again being introduced to our children is just such a, a travesty. Some of you may not see, I'll play a couple of video clips to you, but uh, a show on Nickelodeon was playing this. One of the shows target of kids' audience here. It's pride, everybody! Every color on the pride flag is a symbol in the sky. Pride! And I'm proud to be me every time that I see that pride flag waving high. Red, pink, 
this one is from Blue's Clues. Again, another show that is really targeted for young kids. And this one is from Blue's Clues. Hey, Blue, look at all these families. Hi, families. It's time for a pride parade. Families marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah. Families marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah. This family has two mommies. They love each other so proudly. And they all go marching in the big parade. Family. So that's the kind of stuff that is getting pushed and getting put out there in our culture today to say this is all normal and what was once maybe something that was kept in the dark and in secret now is being celebrated as something that is just normal and we need to have our kids being introduced to this here. Paul says to note those that live a good example and note those that aren't living that kind of example and set, set themselves apart. They're those that set themselves apart as not of the Lord. And we need to be those that are set apart from them. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 5, Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. Now listen, what we're seeing here more and more are churches. You look at what's going on today in, in, in Christianity and, and in a church. And these things, again, are being adopted in the church, where churches are looking to, you know, hang the, the pride parade, where you're hearing now about churches that are hiring transgender pastors and, and everything like that. I mean, this is becoming very normal in some churches. And it is, you wonder, how did we get there? How far we've gone away from the truth of the Word of God? Now listen, let me just say, that Christians have given themselves a bad name by looking with disdain at people that are living in sin. And that is the issue. People are sinners and often live in and for their sin. We don't need to classify sin or look at some lifestyles or behavior as more sinful than others. The issue is sin. And if anyone is living in sin, do not push them away or no longer have connection with them. Our job should be that we are seeking to be an example of godliness to them. Notice Paul is weeping here. It could be that he's weeping for those that these people have led astray. Or it could be that he's weeping over these people that have been led astray, whose lives are broken and derailed because of sin and the harm that it brings. Our hearts should continue to be for people regardless of where they're at. Don't be led astray by their sin or follow their example. Be that example to them. But set yourself apart. Say, I don't need to adopt this. I don't need to follow along. But my heart goes out to people like that. We should be praying for those people. Don't look at disdain and, and, and turn up your nose and go, oh, well, they're just, you know, going to hell. That should never be the attitude of the stance of the believer. Our stance should be, man, these people need Jesus. And I want to live that example to them. I want to pray for them. I want to see them come to know Jesus and be delivered out of this lifestyle that Paul says is going to end in destruction because they've gone away from God and his word. There's a reversal of morality. And it's becoming all too common to the point where Christians are adopting this and accepting it, promoting it, and even celebrating it. That should not be the case. But we need to pray for those people. 
Don't be freaked out. Don't be weirded out. Because this is going to become more and more the things that you see. Don't be weirded out by that, but go, man, I want to pray for them. I want to see them experience the life and joy that Jesus brings and the freedom that he brings. Because these people are, are, are lost in sin. They followed the enemy. They followed the lie. And they need to get onto the path of truth. Now, Paul lays out here why we should be set apart. We should be set apart because ultimately we're not living for this world. We have something far more important, far better, far more exciting to live for than anything that this world could offer. Look at what we read here in verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So Paul gives a contrast now between those who are living for this world, as mentioned in verse 19, those who have set their mind on earthly things. See, they've not lifted their eyes up high enough to the greater, more glorious things that should be motivating us and moving us on to press on in Jesus. He says, man, we got to have our view much higher than the things of this world. Because the things of this world aren't going to satisfy. There's something far greater for us. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, when Paul said that, he's speaking a term that would have really registered with that church in Philippi. William Barclay said, here was a picture the Philippians could understand. Philippi was a Roman colony. Here and there are strategic military centers. The Romans established their colonies. In such places, the citizens were mostly soldiers who had served their time up to 21 years and who had been rewarded with full citizenship. He goes on to say, the great characteristic of these colonies was that wherever they were, they, were, they remained fragments of Rome. Roman-style clothes were worn. Roman magistrates governed. Latin was spoken. Roman justice was administered. Roman morals were observed. Even in the most remote regions, they remained unshakably Roman. Paul says to the Philippians, just as the Roman colonists never forget that they belong to Rome, you must never forget that you are citizens of heaven and your conduct must match your citizenship. See, those living in Philippi, they all enjoyed the benefits, the perks, the privileges of being a Roman citizen. It was like a Rome away from Rome here for them. Citizenship is important. See, we have the freedom to travel to another country. We can go and enjoy everything there, but there's certain benefits that we'll only receive as citizens in our own country. And it's in my own country that I'm most invested in and finding comfort in when I'm away on a trip. Or, sorry, when, when I'm finding comfort in. When I am away on a trip, I'm usually looking forward to getting back home. And you know what that's like when you are away somewhere and you're having an extended stay. Well, as glorious as that place might be, there gets a point where you're like, I'm looking forward to getting back home. I'm looking forward to just being back home in the comforts of my home. You might be flying back home, having a layover in an airport. You're not going into that bathroom at that airport going, man, you know what? This place really needs a makeover, man. These faucets are all outdated. Man, I'm going to really look at making this a little bit better for my stay. And you're going, I don't care what the bathroom is like. I'm not investing into that because I'm just passing through. I'm not worried about it. I'm not looking to make this airport stay comfortable for me. I know this is not my home. I'm just passing through. See, we're all called to be sojourners and pilgrims here in this life, in this world. 
In other words, we see this world as though we're strangers and we're just passing through. We're just passing through. Now, of course, we occupy, we go about our Father's business. We're not looking to say this world has no value. No, but the value is found with an eternal perspective. So that we live in this life to say, Man, I, I want to store up treasures in heaven, as Jesus says. I want to see ultimately people coming to know Jesus. I want to see people transferring their citizenship from this world to become citizens of heaven. I want to see as many people brought along with me on my way to heaven. But it's having that right perspective and view. So Paul says, I love this here. He says, we are citizens in heaven from which we also eagerly wait now. Look at that, for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. That word eagerly wait is a great descriptive term. It's translated wait for. It denotes a waiting that is eager and intense. It, it means expect anxiously. It was the favorite word to use of the expectation of the parousia, the return of Christ. The idea here when he says, you know, that eager and intense expectation anxiously it's like the idea of straining your neck and getting up like on your tippy toes to like look for something those of you that haven't been blessed you know with my height deficiency this is something you don't understand too well here but for me I get this very well when I'm at a concert or something or even at the back of the church and I want to see what's going on up here I'm like having to be like hey what's happening up there I'm straining to see and to get a better perspective this is what Paul is saying here that we eagerly wait it's as though we're straining to look ahead to go Jesus I'm ready for your return I'm looking forward I want to see you I'm ready for you I'm I'm anxiously anticipating and expecting your return. Is that how we're living today? Are we living with our view, like Paul says there in verse 19, they've set their mind on earthy things. Or have we got our gaze upward, saying, I'm not worried about the things on this earth. You see, when we have a proper view of heaven as citizens, of, or we say, that's my home, not this home here, that's my home, and I know that Jesus is coming soon. It causes us to say, whatever I go through in this world is temporary, and it doesn't ultimately matter. The pain, the suffering, the difficulties we might endure become a whole lot less bothersome when we see this is temporary. I'm waiting for my future home. See, if our target is off, our joy and blessing will be greatly diminished. If we're shooting for the things of this world, we're going to be greatly disappointed. See, they're not meant to satisfy. Whatever you might find in this world pales in comparison to what we have in Jesus. God has something greater for us. Don't have your mind on earthly things. Lift it higher to the things that really matter, to the things that truly satisfy. Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 23, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, when we set our sights on the right target, when we are eagerly waiting for the return of Jesus, 
It does much to protect us from the earthly and sensual enticements. That's what Paul was dealing with there. Verse 18, 19, there's people that are living solely for the things of this earth to feed their fleshy desires. But when we live to say, oh man, I got something greater to live for. I got something greater than I'm anticipating and expecting. It's the return of Jesus. It's being with Jesus. And that does much to protect us from falling prey to the things of this world or, or getting burdened down or or. or disrupted by the difficulties of this world. Now, I love what Paul says here. He says when Jesus comes, he's going to transform our lowly body. We might find this world to be a struggle because our old nature, again, it gets pulled to the things of this world. There's a, there's a connection there. This is the arena that the enemy likes to work in and luring us into things of the world. And our bodies are, again, they're lowly, it says. They're prone to those things. But Paul says, man, he's going to transform our lowly bodies. Presently, we see that these bodies are very weak. And they're prone to the second law of thermodynamics, where they are decaying. They are not getting any better, right? They don't improve with time, sadly. They hurt more. We struggle. We weaken. We're in need of transformation. Would you not agree? And when that happens... We're going to be clothed in our glorified body. We're going to be fit for eternity where we'll no longer have any pain, hurt. There'll be no more COVID to deal with. We're going to be made new. We're going to have glorified body and, and bodies just like Jesus experienced when he died and rose again where he was able to be in one place and all of a sudden appear in another place. When his disciples were locked in a room because of fear, suddenly Jesus appears right there, passes through locked doors. Wouldn't that have been fun? Sneak up on your disciples, just like, hey guys, what are you doing? They're all like, oh, they're already fearful and freaked out. All of a sudden Jesus comes up, hey guys, what's going on? Like, what is, why are you doing that to us? My goodness, you know. It's a body that's no longer limited by physical dimensions. Paul says, you're going to be conformed to his glorious body. We're going to be made like him. That's what we have to look forward to. So though our bodies are weak and though we're, we're prone and, and, and fall prey to weakness at times, man, one day, these bodies are going to be transformed and conformed to his glorious body. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So Paul is reminding us to live with a heavenly view. Don't get bogged down by the temporary restraints of this world. Don't let the hurts and sufferings experienced in this world rob you of that joyous expectation of the world to come. In fact, it's the expectation of heaven that keeps us going through the difficulties of life. Listen, when you see what's going on in the world today and you take a very literal view of Revelation as we love to do, you begin to say, Jesus is coming soon. That rapture, which I believe is going to happen before this tribulation period comes, this rapture, Jesus is going to call us and meet us in the air. He's going to rapture us up and we're going to see him. And when we see him, we're going to be made like him. That's the hope that we have. That day's coming soon. I pray that because of that, it causes us to live differently. Not to isolate, 
Not to pull away and go, well, this world doesn't matter. No, again, we go, because he's coming soon, and I want to make a difference in this world. I want my life to shine. I want to be an example to others of a life that is lived with hope in Jesus. And I want others to come and know that hope and find salvation and life in Jesus. That's what we should be busy about doing. But it's our, our view of heaven and our, our hope and expectation of his soon return that causes us to live that way all the more. Listen, if you are still not sold yet, I have three reasons why heaven is going to be awesome. If you're taking notes, I hope you take this down. First of all, here's why heaven is going to be so awesome. Because we're going to be with Jesus. Secondly, because we're going to be with Jesus. Thirdly, we're going to be with Jesus for all of eternity. Rejoicing with him, seeing him face to face. Life is never going to be better. Hallelujah, what a day that's going to be when my Savior I shall see. When I look upon his face. And I can't remember the last line. And be something about his grace. Help me out, somebody. And, okay, we're making up a song here. It's all good. It's a great old hymn. I'll write it down for the next service. But um, what a day that's going to be, my friends. And you see, if you're not living for and in Jesus right now, heaven may not be an exciting expectation. But if Jesus is truly your life right now, you know that whatever you might have to endure presently, it'll all be worth it for the incomparable richness of being with our Savior and being like our Savior. You can count on that reality because he is able, as Paul ends here, he is able, or, or sorry, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. God's going to bring it all together. He's able. He's more than able. That's our confidence. It's not a hope of, I hope it works out that way. It's a hope of a confident expectation. He's going to bring it all together, subdue all things under him, by which we ourselves will be brought under his reign and rule and experience the blessings of eternal life in and with Jesus. Let us live as citizens of heaven today. All right, let's pray. Worship team, you come and lead us in our last song here. Lord, thank you for who you are and what you've done for us in giving us life, giving us hope, giving us a confident expectation that soon, Lord, we're going to be with you. Where all the things that we've endured in this life, we will know and see that it has all been worth it for the incomparable greatness of being with you, Jesus. And I pray that heaven is not something that we have to wait to experience that today. Right now we live in you and for you and experience life through you, Jesus. And cause us all the more to live with that joyous expectation of your soon return. And listen, if you're watching online or you're here with us today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you don't know what's going to happen to you when you die. This idea of heaven sounds wonderful, but there's no assurance that you have of going there. That can change today. Because the Bible says... This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. The question is, are you in Jesus today? Have you given your life to Jesus? See, Jesus came and died on the cross to forgive you of your sin. It's your sin that kept you from Him. But He made a remedy for that. He died. He took your place on a cross. He paid the penalty for your sin that He could give you now His righteousness. But you need to call out for that. You need to say, I'm 
I'm confessing that I'm a sinner. I'm in need of salvation. Jesus, forgive me. I want your life to be my life. And when you invite him in to be your Lord and Savior, you become a new creation. You become a child of God. You become born again, where you now have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. If you've not accepted that, I encourage you, why wait? What stops you from receiving this free gift of salvation by which you now have assurance of eternal life that when you die, you're gonna be with Jesus forever and ever. Would you receive him today? If you haven't done that, just simply say, Lord, I confess I'm a sinner and I need you. I need that forgiveness and your salvation. Come into my life and be my life. Let me live for you now. When you pray that, the Bible says, you become a child of God. Receive that freely today by grace. And if you have, would you come and talk to me or email us the church? We would love to just share more with you. Let's stand together and let's close with this song here.